Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, what I want us to do is to, I want us to look at, well, obviously the authorship is the first thing we see up there. And as I said a few weeks ago, Luke writes the most material in the entire Bible. I mean, not the entire Bible, the entire New Testament. Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote Acts. And so if you combine those two books together, you have the most volume of any writer, more volume than Paul. Not as many books as Paul, but more volume. And so you, you look there in verse 1 um, of Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. Okay, so who's he writing to? He's writing to Theophilus in my first book, which is Luke. Now it's my second book. And so what's the big... All right, we have to really go back to Luke to look at the cliffhanger, cliffhanger ending. So let's go back to Luke. And I want us to see the cliffhanger ending in Luke that sets up the stage for how Acts is going to begin. So let's go back to Luke, chapter 24, and let's look at the cliffhanger ending. Luke, chapter 24, verse 48. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Okay, so what's the cliffhanger ending of Luke? What are they to be waiting for? The, well, does it say Holy Spirit there? It says the promise. The promise of the Father. Now, it's assumed it's the Holy Spirit because we know the rest of the Bible. But he says you will be what? Clothed with power from on high. And then Jesus goes back up to heaven. He ascends. So Luke ends with this cliffhanger of them waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Okay, so we turn to Acts. So episode one, Luke. Episode two, Acts, the sequel. Acts begins by saying, in my first book, O Theophilus, I've told you all that Jesus did. Now I'm going to tell you everything that's going to happen after Jesus went back up to heaven. But there's something that's going to have to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to have to come upon them. Now, let's look at the thesis there's the thesis statement of Acts. What I consider the thesis statement of Acts is Acts 1.8. Not only is Acts 1.8 the thesis, but I think Acts 1.8 also gives us, and I'm not following, I'm probably not going to follow the handout. Okay? Is that all right? We may get to some of these questions. Acts 1.8 is the thesis of the book of Acts. Not only is it the thesis, but it's also the setting for the structure of the book of Acts. So how the actual book unfolds is based upon what we find out in Acts 1.8. Now, we should have this verse memorized. Jesus said to them, but you will receive power. power. What, would it, what did Luke promise? Power. power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria... And the ends of the earth. Okay, so one thesis is that the, the, the thesis of the book of Acts is this. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon God's people and empower them to be witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Do we see this in the book of Acts? Does In chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Where are they when, it come, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them? Jerusalem. So let's just look real quickly at your book of Acts. Chapter, all right, so chapter 2, we'll, we'll look in more detail. And I'm giving you the, oh, the flyover right now. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Chapter 3, they're still in Jerusalem. Chapter 4, they're still in Jerusalem. Chapter 5, they're still in Jerusalem. Chapter 6, they're still in Jerusalem. Chapter 7, Stephen is stoned in Jerusalem. And then chapter 8, what do we see? 
we see the next phase in the geography, okay? What does it say there? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Judea and Samaria. So the next few chapters are going to talk about how the early church does ministry in Judea and Samaria. Okay, so you go through chapter 8 all the way up through chapter 13. Okay, in chapter 13, there's a pivotal switch. In chapter 13, you have the, the, the daughter church of Jerusalem, Antioch, sending Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. And so from chapters 13 all the way to the very end, where is the gospel going? Paul's going to Philippi, and he's going to Thessalonica, and he's going to Corinth, and he's, he's wanting to go to Rome, and um, he eventually gets shipwrecked, and he eventually goes before those, those three trials, before those leaders. And so the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. And if you remember, how did I end Acts, those of you that were there? Does Acts end? Acts ends with Acts 29. What's the last chapter in the chapter of Acts? 28. But... The, the book is still being written, right? Because the church is still here. We're still empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're still called to go to the ends of the earth. We're still called to be witnesses. Christ has not come back yet. Okay, so that's the theological thesis of the book. Power, witness, those key words. Are we going to see the power of the Holy Spirit and witness all the way through Acts? You bet. And then structurally, this geography sets the structure for how Luke actually writes the whole book of Acts. Okay, does that, does that make sense? So structurally and theologically. So let's go back to your handout real quick. And let's go to, I don't know what page it is, but um, it start, that, that, this question I want to bring up. It's, is it page two? Okay, it's unique problem and application. Due to its nature as a historical writing, what is normative? Now, there's a big interpretive question in Acts, okay? And so let's, let's just struggle with this question. I didn't have a lot of time to unpack this on Sunday morning when I preached because we wanted to get through it in a year. But the question we have to ask is, what is normative and what is descriptive? Okay? Some passages describe what happened and there, it doesn't really tell us that we should uh, apply this to our lives today. Some passages are normative, meaning they are to be practiced today in the church. How do we choose which one is which? For example, in Acts chapter 2, what happens? Tongues come down from heaven and people start speaking in other languages. Is Pentecost normative or is it descriptive? Okay, just a question I'm going to throw out there. We also find out in the book of Acts that Paul touched some handkerchiefs, and those handkerchiefs were anointed, and people would want to go get healed by his handkerchiefs. Are we supposed to go have a handkerchief ministry today? Some televangelists do have the handkerchief ministry. <laughs> do you lay up hands on persons to have them receive the Holy Spirit? How many of you, when you got saved, somebody laid hands on you and gave you the Holy Spirit? Not one person in this room raised their hand. So are any of you guys saved then? I mean, that's what happened in Acts, that they laid their hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit. So is that something that's supposed to happen today or was that descriptive of that time and that place? Also, in Acts chapter 2, they were sharing their possessions. It almost sounds like communism. Everybody didn't have anything in need. Everybody was sharing. Are we supposed to do that today? Are we supposed to have private property? Or we come to church and everybody, we have a collective pool and everybody owns everything and we just all have a communal society. Is that normative or is that descriptive? Okay, what happens if you lie about selling a piece of real estate? Does God strike you dead? Is that normative or is that descriptive? Ananias and Sapphira. So there's a lot of things in Acts that we'd have to say, okay, some of these things are normative, some of these things are descriptive. So how do we determine which is which? Here's the grid that I use. Okay, this may, There may be some holes in this grid, but I, I think this is the, the only grid that I, I know of how to do it. If something's taught once, in Acts, or it shows up once, but it never shows up again in the epistles, 
or it's not explicitly commanded in the epistles, then we have to probably make it an educated guess that it was probably a description of what just happened in the early church. So let me give you an example. Twice in the book of Acts, they laid hands on someone to receive the Holy Spirit. In any of the epistles, do you know of any teaching where Paul tell, or James or Peter tells the early church after Acts in the epistles to lay hands on somebody in order for them to receive the Holy Spirit? Do you ever see that again? No, you don't. Do you have any example of that happening again? No, you don't. So you probably have to say, interpretively, that was probably a one-time event that happened in the early church for a specific purpose, but it's not to be repeated again. Okay, let's, let's talk about another thing. Is there preaching in Acts? Are there preaching of sermons in Acts? All over the place, okay? Peter preaches like three or four of them. Paul preaches a few. There's preaching all over the place. Okay, do we find preaching commanded in the epistles? Do we find preaching? Okay, so is preaching something that just happened in the early church or is it something we're supposed to practice today? Today, okay. Did they baptize in the early church? Yes, all the time in Acts we're seeing people getting baptized. Do the epistles talk about baptism and do we see evidence of people getting baptized in the epistles? Yes, so are we supposed to continue doing baptism? Yes. Did they celebrate the Lord's Supper in Acts? Yes, they did. Do we see the Lord's Supper talked about in the epistles? Yes, so is the Lord's Supper supposed to be commanded? Continued. Yeah, so those are some ongoing things that are to be practiced. Okay, here's the big one. We'll just open up this can of worms because this is where people, different denominations, let's talk about tongues. Are there tongues, speaking in tongues in Acts? Are there mention of speaking in tongues in the epistles? Yes. Are there people that speak in tongues today? Yes. Does everybody speak in tongues? No. Is it commanded that everybody speak in tongues? No. So you have one doctrine here that it showed up in Acts, it showed up in the epistles, it shows up today, but not everybody does it. So is it, is it, is it something that everybody's supposed to do, or how do we deal with tongues? And that's probably the hardest thing in Acts that you deal with, uh, because there's this, it's kind of a tricky one, because the other ones we can clearly see, but there's a practice that we see in the Bible, there's a practice we see in Acts, in the epistles, and a practice we see in the church today and so, but not everybody does it. Now, most churches celebrate Lord's Supper, right? Hopefully, if you're a true church, you celebrate communion. Most churches celebrate baptism. Now, they may not baptize by immersion the way we as Baptists do, but they may sprinkle or they may, um, they may do like infant baptism, but at least they do some type of baptism. But do every, does every church speak in tongues? Okay, so, so when you read Acts, you have to always struggle with, is what I'm reading something that was descriptive that happened in the early church, or is it prescriptive or normative that's supposed to happen today any questions on that because that's where you have different denominations okay can i do the dogma doctrine preferences real quick for you guys again just because i know we do this a lot but let's just do it again because i think it's very helpful and if you've seen this multiple times just yawn and stretch and try to stay alive and um the rest of you can Okay, so those of you that are listening on the, um, on the audio, I'm drawing, a, I'm drawing um, concentric circles like a bullseye. In the middle of the bullseye is the term dogma. On the next circle in the bull, on the outer, the next ring in the, in the target here, in the semicircle or the concentric circles is doctrine. And then on the outer one is preferences. Okay, dogma. Dogma are those absolute essentials that we have to believe in order to be a Christian. Okay, so if you don't if if you don't hold to some certain dogma, you either become a non-Christian cult, or you're a world religion, or you're a, a very liberal Christian that has lost, has moved into heresy. Okay, so what are some dogmas? You guys tell me what are some dogmas that, regardless of your denomination, in order to be a true Christian, you have to believe these things. What are some dogmas? Okay, the virgin birth. That's a good one. What are some other ones? Okay, that Jesus died on the cross, substitutionary atonement. What else? The what? The deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. Okay, the Trinity, the resurrection, that he bodily resurrected. It wasn't like a ghost or he fainted in the tomb or something like that. Um, resurrection, Trinity, virgin birth, died on the cross, deity of Christ. Heaven, hell, the reality. There's heaven, there's hell. 
There's a second coming. Now, the details of how that all works out, but Jesus is going to come back. Um, I would say probably one I put on there would be the authority of the Scriptures, that the Bible is God's God-breathed Word. Okay. Are there any other dogmas that we can think of that would be those absolute, stand, those absolute essentials you have to believe in order to be a Christian? That's probably a pretty good list there. Okay. Doctrine. This is where it gets even more tricky. Doctrine are those secondary beliefs that we can hold very, very strongly, but they're not dogmas, okay? So we wouldn't say, if you differ with me on a doctrine, you're not a Christian. So what would be some doctrines? And this is really where denominations get divided. Okay, baptism. The the mode of baptism. Do you baptize by dunking or are you baptized by sprinkling? What's another doctrine? Eternal security. Can you lose your salvation or can you, or do you not lose your salvation? Okay. Um, we wouldn't say to our Nazarene friends that they're not Christians because they believe that you can lose your salvation and they wouldn't look at us and say, well, because you guys hold to eternal security, you're not Christians. It's a, it's a doctrine. What are some other doctrines? Spiritual gifts like tongues and healings and miracles and things like that. In times schemes. There's the charts and graphs people, and there are the pan-millennialists that believe it's all going to pan out. And as long as you believe Jesus is coming back, that's all you need to worry about. Uh, what are some other, maybe um, the role of the, the gender roles in the church? You know, some churches have female pastors or female elders. Um, what are some other doctrines, maybe? Election, Election yeah, Calvinism, Arminianism. Um, not the election, but the doctrine of election. What do you believe on? What do you believe on predestination? What you know, things like that. Predestination. What are some other doctrines? You probably could think of some different doctrines that people would have that we can say. Okay, we're going to have some really, really strong beliefs on this. Okay, so for example, as a Baptist church, we're going to have some really strong beliefs on the doctrine of baptism, aren't we? As Baptist, okay, we're probably going to have some pretty strong beliefs on eternal security at Emmanuel. We're probably going to have some pretty strong beliefs on gender roles at Emmanuel. Um, you know, the charismatic people that would be like more your Assembly of God or, or Pentecostals, they're going to have some very strong beliefs on tongues. Dispensationalists are going to have some really strong beliefs on end times. Now, those that lean more towards Arminianism are going to have some strong beliefs on Arminianism. Those that lean toward Calvinism, more strong beliefs on Calvinism. And so we can, we can agree to disagree on this, and this is usually where you see different denominations. So even here in Sterling, you can look at the different churches that have different doctrines, and they've organized themselves around the doctrines. Okay? Every Wednesday, even today, I meet with a group of pastors, and we pray. We pray for about an hour, okay? So I meet with um, Pastor John at First Baptist, Pastor Ben at the Foursquare, Pastor Dale at the United Church, Church of Crook, and Pastor Marshall, who is out at Stoneham, at the, at the what's it called, Chapel of the, Plains. Chapel, Chapel of the Plains, or Chapel of the Plains. And I'm sure if we sat down, we would all have some great conversations about our doctrinal beliefs. But we usually, don't, we usually don't go there because we're there to pray for each other, to pray for Sterling, to pray for revival, to pray for our churches. And it's a beautiful thing when we can come together and we can pray together. But am I going to be a member of one of their churches? Probably not for my own personal conviction because my doctrine is different. So you see what I'm saying? Different churches have different doctrines. And so when you get to Acts, this is where you look at these things and say, okay, we're going to come up with some doctrines that we're going to hold to, and it may make our church different than the church down the street, but dogma we're still going to hold. So these guys, I can pray with them because we all have dog, dog, dogma. And for the most part, I would probably say if we sat down and talked about doctrine, we'd all be okay with each other's doctrine. We may not agree every jot and tittle, but we're not going to quibble or you know, um, and things like that. Now, let's get to preferences. Does the pastor wear a tie or does he wear jeans and a T-shirt? Is there a praise team or is there a choir? Do you have a slope floor in the sanctuary or do you have a flat floor? Because we fought that battle when we were building the new church. Um, do you have a Coke machine in the fellowship hall or do you not have a Coke machine? Do you have drums or do you just have a piano? 
Do you use the King James only Bible or do you use the ESV or the NASB or the NIV? Do you do Team Kid or do you do Awana? Um, do you have Baptist in the name or do you have community church? Different things, okay? So these are things that aren't necessarily biblical, but people can have some really strong opinions on preferences, can't they? Where do most churches end up splitting over? Yeah, I think most churches end up splitting over preferences, okay? And I've told, I teach this in my new members class. I've told it before. I say, if this church is going to split, let's at least split over dogma, okay? Let's, let's at least have a hill to die on. But let's hopefully, we're not going to, you know, because what is preferences all about? I didn't like that, or I like this, or I like that, or I didn't like that, or to me this. So preferences, okay? So you've got dogma, doctrine, preferences. What are some other preferences you guys can think of? The color of carpet. The what was that? Run the ceiling fans? Okay, maybe if you have ceiling fans, okay. The big thing in your church? I can tell you, man, when we were in India, we'd love to have some. Yeah, we have enough fans. Yeah, what was somebody else says? Color of carpet? Yeah, the color of chairs, types of chairs. Do you have pews? Do you have pews or you have chairs? Let me ask the other. Let me ask the flip side. When is it ever appropriate to actually leave a church? When what? When you know it's wrong. Okay, but what? Okay, what? What would be? Because some people end up leaving a church because of a preference, and I'm not saying it's never wrong to leave a church because of a preference. And I think that it's between you and the Lord as far as how He leads you, but. Let's just talk some general principles here. When would it ever be appropriate to say, I can no longer fellowship at this church? What would there have to be for you to, to do that? Where, where, would, where, would the question, where would the line be drawn? Okay. Okay, so yours would be, hopefully the dogma, like if they're not in dogma, hopefully you'd be out of there like in a minute. Okay, if somebody starts spouting off from the pulpit, Jesus is one of many ways, and there's no such thing as hell, and we can't believe the Bible, and we're all just one happy family coming together, and it's okay to marry gays, and we can, you know, go out and have an abortion. It's all right. I mean, you know what I'm saying. If somebody starts saying all that kind of stuff, and so you're like, I mean, hopefully by then you're like, okay, I can smell it. We probably need to leave this place. Um, so most people will probably, you know, but my question is, okay, how does a church drift? Because for some strange reason, a church drifts from being doctrinally sound to not doctrinally sound to not dogmatically sound. How does that drift happen? Okay, pragmatism. Okay, let me write these down because so I, I want to come back and answer these because you're, you're using big words and I want to make sure we talk about it. Pragmatism, that's not a big word, but I'm just saying pragmatism. Okay, you said so a slow... Little by little pragmatism little by little anti subtle subtle okay subtle how about anti-disestablishmentarianism no okay all right somebody else what are some other reasons why okay lack of discernment among okay i would say lack of discernment among the people too Okay, so there becomes a lack of a, a lack of submission to authority of Scripture. Well, here's what I would say, guys, and we'll come back to this. That's the number one issue for me, because once that card falls, it's a it's a house of cards. If you start questioning the authority of Scripture, then you can question pretty much any doctrine, anything's up for grabs. So the first thing you should, if you ever move or ever have to, like if I go wacko or something and you have to find another church, the first thing, I'm trying to train you, the first thing that you ought to, not that I'm going to go wacko, but the first, I'm saying if you ever have to move or whatever, the first thing that you want to do is you want to sit down with that pastor or sit down with those elders and ask them, what is your view on the scriptures? The first question. If they can't answer that adequately and give you an adequate answer that this is the inerrant, authoritative, inspired word, God-breathed word of God, and we submit ourselves to this, then you need to really question where the rest of... Now, here's the hard thing. Back to pragmatism. A person can give lip service to this, but in practice, they cannot. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. Somebody may believe in the inerrancy, in the authority, in the inspiration of Scripture... 
But there's another issue that they don't believe in. They don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And what I mean by the sufficiency is they don't believe that the Scripture is sufficient to answer all the questions. And so since the Scripture is not sufficient, pragmatism basically, here's a definition of pragmatism. We are going to do whatever works, whatever gets the best results to keep people coming regardless if it compromises the Scripture, because the Scripture is not sufficient. If we just talked about sin and repentance and we talked about hell, people aren't going to come. So we need to be pragmatic and we need to do little dramas and little shows and and water down the message so that people will come and then people do come because you're you're compromising the message. And in your heart of hearts and your leadership, they may submit to the authority of Scripture verbally, but in practice they don't submit to the sufficiency of Scripture. Does that make sense? So give me an example of pragmatism. What were you thinking? Do you have a specific example or just in general? So there was a lack of discernment among the leaders of of discerning what was going on in the world and allowing it in their church. And I would say the flip side of this is that there's oftentimes a lack of discernment among the people to where they just let whatever the pastor says, we'll go with it. He's the pastor. He's got to know what he's talking about. Turn with me real quick. I just thought about this passage of Scripture. We're taking a huge diversion from Acts, but this is a lot of fun. So um, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I mean, not Acts. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Yeah, yeah. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Yeah, we were in Acts. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, this, this answers the question that we've been talking about right now with pragmatism, with, mis- with slowly creeping away from the authority of Scripture. So, so 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, let's read this together. This is, Paul, this is really Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy. It's his last will and testament to Timothy. These are his last words. So here we go. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and as a kingdom, preach what? Your opinion? Preach happy little stories? Preach what the culture wants to hear? What does it say? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The Bible predicts it. If you do not preach the word, what are people going to do? They're going to want to accumulate around themselves people that will tell them what they want to hear. But what does Paul say to do up there? How does he tell you to preach? Look at verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? In season and out of season. In season means when people really want to hear what you want to say, preach it. Out of season means when people really don't want to hear what you have to say, preach it anyway. And then notice what he uses, the words he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What does it mean to reprove and rebuke? That means the pastor's going to have to step on toes. He's going to have to address sin. He's going to have to address repentance. He's going to have to address issues that are going to happen. If a pastor doesn't address those issues, he's not preaching the entirety of God's Word. Can you read from Genesis to Revelation and not have your toes stepped on? Can you read from Genesis to Revelation and not be called to repent or to holiness or to follow Christ or to submit to His Lordship? Okay? But what's the temptation? And I can tell you from a pastor's point of view, it's very tempting. It would be very tempting for me to stand up and say, you know what? This church has been 250 to 300 for seven years that I've been here. And I'm not content with these numbers because it means I'm a failure that only these people are coming. So if we want to be a church of five or six or 700, let me preach a message where I know the people will come. And the people will come and the people will come and I'll feel really good about myself and I can go brag about myself that our church grew from 250 to 700. Look at all these people coming. And guess what's happening? The true sheep are not being fed and the, the church is being filled with goats. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. So what would you rather have, a church that stays consistently at 275, 300 with sound teaching or a church of 1,000 or whatever? Does numbers matter? No, I can't control that anyway. Um, I've told the church, you know, I'll preach if there's 15, I'll preach if there's 1,500, and it'll be the same message. Just 15 people get their toes stepped on versus 1,500. But a lot of pastors, I think, are insecure in themselves, number one, And they're insecure in the power of the word. 
So what they have to do is they have to try to add or supplement to the word with pragmatism in order to get a crowd to come to keep them coming. They've got to keep doing these things to entertain people. The more they do it, the more they get the rush, the church gets bigger, and you've got to do something better the next week to, to, to top what you did the week before. And eventually it becomes this, how can we top the next week? And you become an entertainment model, and what you bring them in on, you have to sustain them on. Does that make sense? We went on a long tangent. Where were we? We were talking about dogma, doctrine, and preferences. But I think that, oh, our question was, when is it ever appropriate to actually leave a church? So here's my other question. What, how, do you, how, do you, how do you have discernment as a church member? How, how do, do you just trust what your pastor says based upon the fact that he stands up there? Or do you... Filter. There's one passage in Acts that we will look at. Let's look at this real quick because I think it's applicable. These, since, we, since I spent a whole year in Acts, some of these things will just start popping into my head. But in Acts chapter 17, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 10. This is after Thessalonica. Paul is, uh, they, they go and they, they have a mob riot in Jason's house looking for Paul. And he and Silas have to hightail it out of Thessalonica and go down to Berea in the middle of the night because they're looking for Paul. Like I've always said, when Paul walks into a town, there's either a riot or a revival, and this is one of those times where there's a riot. But a church's birth, the Thessalonian church. But look at Acts 17.10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what was this church doing? They received the word. They were examining. How many days were they examining? As it says, they were examining it daily to see if what Paul, see if it, what Paul was saying matched up to the scriptures. So a good Berean, which our church down the street, our friends are named after that, after this passage of scripture, a good Berean says, I'm not going to take at face value what someone says. I'm going to filter it through the scriptures. Now, God has given teachers to the church to help learn. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't pay a pastor or a person if they didn't know what they were talking about. So hopefully you, you trust by now that I'm going to come with the word. But you should never just point blank trust what I say. You should always go back and say, did what he say match up with the word? Now, let me, let me tell you a little hint of what I do on Sunday mornings. You probably figured this out after seven and a half years. Normally when I preach, we preach out of a major text, right? But then how many... Why do I flash all those scriptures up on the screen all throughout my sermon? Why do I do that? You tell me why do I do that? I want, yes, I want you to see that, number one, what I want you to see is that the Bible is unified. So a doctrine that, or a teaching that we may be looking at, there may be 15 other passages that support what we're talking about. So it helps you over time say, I can trust the Bible because we're seeing it. And number two, I want you to see that what I'm saying here has contextual support in the text, but also has other support in the rest of the Bible um, to, to, to self-authenticate what we're saying. Okay, So that's why, some, in like the past few weeks, I'm really sorry we've been doing Bible drill because I'm, I'm preaching more topical, but I want you guys to see that all, I almost put, maybe put too much Scripture in there on Sunday mornings, but I, I don't think it's too much because I want you guys to see the, the beauty and the, and, the, and, the, and the unity of the Scriptures fitting all together. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So back to our question. You guys as church members need to have discernment. You need to always submit yourself to the scriptures. You need to be looking for pragmatism. Um, sometimes it can be slow and subtle. Sometimes it could be like I can tell you what happened to a church. Um, when I was president of the state convention of Colorado Baptist, we had to deal with a church over on the western slope that had um, decided to move away from Southern Baptist teachings. And Southern Baptists spent years building that church building, and the pastor came in, and after five years, he moved his church away from believing in the authority of Scripture. So we sat there in a meeting, and we were trying to appeal to them to either start a new church with your doctrine or give us your building, because the bill, they didn't want to do that. And so we're sitting across the table, and this pastor says, you know, you guys have come here and you probably have a different view of the Bible than I do. 
and Jim Shaddix, who was the pastor of Riverside Baptist, who was a seminary professor, and who's, he's now on staff at David Platt's church. He's the associate pastor there. Um, he's the one that mentored David Platt. And Jim and I were sitting there, and the, and the guy, the pastor says, you guys probably believe the Bible is absolutely true without any mixture of error. And we looked at each other and was like, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, we believe the Bible contains God's word, but it is not literally God's word. And Jim said, at this point, we can't have any further discussion because we, we can't go any further because our basis of understanding. And what he had done was he had taken his church to, not, to, to, to move in their constitution to move away from what we believe about the inerrancy of Scripture as a denomination to embrace a liberal view. And he came in systematically over five years and did that. And those people took it hook, line, and sinker. And, and, and to this day... Um, I think they still have the building and they still believe that theology, but he, he came in purposely to do that. So sometimes pastors come in and purposely try to have an agenda to turn the church into their little pet project. Um, so there's, there, there, there's that happens all the time. Most false teachers aren't going to come in with a name tag that says, hello, my name's Wolfie. You know, <laughs> I'm a wolf. What they're going to do is, and I'll tell you how it happens, because I can tell you exactly how it happens, and I'm sure some of you can confirm this, if, the, if you've ever been around a wolf in sheep's clothing. They're not going to walk in on Sunday morning and announce that they're a wolf. They're going to come to a Sunday school class. They're going to come to a Bible study, and they're going to sound really intelligent, and they're going to sound like really, really like they know their stuff, and they're going to be very compliant at first, and they're going to, and, and they're going to win people's trust. And people are going to say, hey, that guy knows or that woman knows what she's talking about. That person's pretty smart. We, we probably need to think about, you know, and, and every time the class, you know, is struggling, this person has great insight, and everybody tends to look at that person. And over time, that person then says, after they've got people's trust, they begin to say, you know, do you really think that our pastor is really preaching God's Word? Do you really, do you really, do you really support our pastor? How, how about we start a home Bible study in our home, and, and how about I teach us God's Word? You know, they can do what they want to do, that church, you know, the church can, but, you know, the leadership, they're not spirit-filled, they don't have the truth, um, they don't have the, you know, they're just, they just don't have it the way we do. Look at, look at how much we've grown together as a group. Oh, that sounds pretty good. You're smart, and maybe our pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. Next thing you know, they're having a home Bible study over here, and next thing you know, he's got his own little congregation, and the pastor says, hey, where have you guys been? I, I haven't seen you in a few weeks. Well, pastor, you know, um, we're kind of hanging out with so-and-so over here, and, and he really knows what he's talking about, and we think that you may not have the truth. What, what, what are you talking about? That's how it happens. How many of you have ever seen that happen before? <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> Let me tell you, let me just tell you, I need to be real honest. I need to be, I need to be honest with you, okay? I will be honest with you. I've told Don this. I've, I've told very few people this, but I think it's appropriate at this time to tell you this. I've asked God if I ever get off the rails to kill me. I've literally asked him to do that. If I get to where I'm theologically out there, just go ahead and kill me because I don't want to be a false teacher. And I mean that. Um, God, I mean, God has every right to kill me even if, he, if I don't get off the rails because he's sovereign. But I just feel so strongly that I would rather be dead, have God take me out, than to be a false teacher. Um, now, obviously, there, there can be weaknesses in your theology that you don't you need somebody else to come along and help you with. But um, the other thing I was going to think about was, let's say that um, I get hit by a bus or I get incapacitated, this or, or something. You know, a, a church that my parents were members of in San Francisco, their pastor had some major health issues, and he eventually died. And, he, and for like six months, he could not pastor the church. He was in a wheelchair. They, they, they just didn't know what to do, and so he eventually died. Let's say something like that happened to me. How would you go about choosing your next pastor? Because this is what happens with a lot of churches. Well, I get a bunch of resumes. He looks good on paper. We're desperate to have somebody, so let's, I mean, how would, I mean, I'm not saying that we have a comprehensive thing now, but I know that hopefully our elders would put together a team and you guys would have the opportunity to grill that pastor and ask them exactly where they stand on things before they came to be your shepherd. W would you agree that you would have to do that? Um, what? And ask for more than one sermon. Nowadays with Internet, you can go find where, what the, I mean, you know, that, that's like the situation. A lot of pastors put their best sermon out there and they give it to the search committee and then you go back and read the rest of their sermons and, and make sure you do background checks on 
And the reason I'm telling you this is because I, I, I'm thinking of the other church that we're talking about. I'm thinking of other churches I know being in my position uh, as the state convention president for a while. Some of these small churches, especially small churches, sometimes small churches become so desperate to get a pastor that they'll settle for anybody. And they don't do background checks. They don't check the other church to see if they got ran out by their deacons. Or they don't um, you know, look to see if, if, if there's some incriminating information. One of the things we did on our youth pastor search committee, or we, did, we had the, where's my water? When we did our youth pastor search committee, Russell Hirschberger was on the youth pastor search committee, and he was, um, he was our sleuth. He did his Facebook spying. So he could go on these people's Facebook pages and find out a lot of stuff. And he'd come to meetings like, we should go to his Facebook page. And we went there and we're like, hmm. That may be a red flag. And so, I mean, anyway. But that stuff that you have now that you didn't have, you know, Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the access to information, it's harder for a guy out there to hide. There was a guy that we got warned about that was coming in northeastern Colorado and trying to fleece churches. Um, he went into the church in Linden. He, I got his resume for the church in New Raymer. He was from Kansas or someplace like that, but he was coming in, and he was a charlatan, and he was trying to bilk the church for all of its money, and we were warned not to even have anything to do with him. But he was coming in and taking unsuspecting churches, and, um, like, you know, it was just, it's just sad. All right. Anything else? Anything else on that issue? A lot of food for thought. You're like, oh, wow. I hope Sean never dies. Right, exactly. We'll turn to Genesis 3. I'm way far away from Acts, but um, Genesis chapter 3, right from the shoot, from the mouth of the serpent, we have some poisonous words. And these words still echo today. The snake still speaks today. If you don't believe that, go back to, there's a passage in, in Timothy, I didn't go there, but it says that um, in the latter days there will be teachings of demons. Um, so the snake still speaks today. Um, Genesis 3, chapter 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What is Satan doing there? He's putting a seed of doubt into Eve's head about the authority of God's word. Did God really say that? Are you sure he said that? You sure he didn't? You sure you can't? I mean, the culture says this, and psychology says this, and economics says this, and the media says this, but then are you sure God really said this? Because it sure doesn't sound like something God would say. After all, that sounds very archaic. That sounds very old. That sounds very old-fashioned. Did God really say that? Now, the serpent didn't come right out and say, what, he, he's sneaky, right? He didn't come right out and say, don't listen to God. He gets, he gets Eve thinking, hmm, maybe I should question both God's word and God's goodness. Because what did God do? You're free to eat from any tree in the garden except for one tree. God is a good God. And Satan is making Eve question God's goodness. God can't be trusted. God's not good. God's not fair. Did God really say? And any time that you begin to question God's word, you go down the slippery slope of listening to the serpent. Okay? All right, let's go back to Acts because I want to show you a pattern that I think is very important in the book of Acts. I want to show you... a. Um, and you'll see these words, especially if, the, if you have the ESV. Um, I think they do a pretty good job of translating this. I think the NIV and other translations do it. But let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is not in your notes, so let's just... Um, Acts 1, 14. Acts 1, 14 says, All those with one accord were devoting themselves to what? Okay, they were devoting themselves to prayer. 
Okay, that word devoting is a very strong word. It shows up a lot in the early chapters of Acts. Devoting means they were passionate, they were urgent, they were persistent, they were diligent, they were zealous. It's this whole idea they gave themselves wholeheartedly to prayer. Okay, and what were they praying for? At that point, what were they praying for? Who has not come yet? The Holy Spirit has not come yet, has He? What were they told to do? They were told to wait and to pray because you're going to be clothed with power on high. So I'm assuming, the text doesn't tell us, but I'm assuming they were devoting themselves in prayer and expectation that the Holy Spirit would show up. Okay? Now, let's keep moving. In chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. And you see this whole thing called being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when Acts talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not necessarily talking about a salvation experience. That's more the indwelling of the Spirit. What it's talking about is a point in time where you are filled by the Spirit to give you the ability to speak boldly or to witness. So what happens in Acts chapter 2, they've been praying. Okay, the first thing they do, they pray. The Holy Spirit shows up. What does the Holy Spirit do? Fills them with power. And then what do they begin to do? And two, they begin to speak in different languages, but then eventually Peter gets up, and what does he do? He speaks boldly. So let's look here real quick. Where did it all start with, though? Where did it start with? Prayer. Okay. Now, if we go to chapter um, 2, look at verse 42. You see a pattern here in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Same word. They devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, but we also have they devoted themselves to prayer. Okay? So the early church is devoting themselves to prayer. Okay? Look at chapter 3. Verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So in the first three verses, or the first three chapters of Acts, what do we see the apostles doing? Devoting themselves to prayer. Okay? Now, look at chapter um, 4, verse 8. This is the second sermon that Peter gives. Actually, the third sermon that Peter gives, chapter 4, verse 8. Then... Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Now, wait a minute. I thought Peter was already filled with the Holy Spirit. Wasn't he filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Yes. He's filled again. Why does he need to be filled again? It's another opportunity to witness. Okay? So here's the pattern that we see in Acts. You devote yourselves to prayer. You get filled with the Spirit. You speak boldly. And then we see salvation. Sometimes huge. Sometimes not. Peter gets up. How many were saved at Pentecost? 3,000. The next time, 5,000. Okay? Now, let's go and let's look um, at chapter 4. At the end there, Peter gets put in jail and um, he gets released there in 23 and they go, he goes back to where the church is gathering and what's the church doing? They are devoting themselves to prayer. Let's look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, quote, we have a recorded prayer. How do they start their prayer? Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's very important to look at the prayers that are actually recorded in the Bible to help us in our praying. Almost all the prayers that you look at in the Bible, almost all of them, even Old Testament, New Testament, they almost always start with something about God being sovereign or God being creator or God being powerful. It's never coming to God with a laundry list saying, Dear God, please help me, da-da-da-da. It's 
Oh, sovereign God. Oh, creator God. Oh, Lord God. You're the maker of heavens and earth. You're a powerful God. And then they present the request. Um, verse 25, who through the mouth of your, of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy spirit, why do the nation, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your service to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now here's an interesting thing. What do they pray for? Do they pray to get out of it? Do you ever see them saying, Lord, take away the persecution? What's their prayer? Help us to be able to speak with boldness. Okay, so what's the pattern? What do you think is going to happen? They're devoting themselves to prayer. They're praying for boldness. What do you think is going to happen when you pray for boldness? Do you think somehow we're going to see the Holy Spirit come in power? Okay, let's just look and see how it happens. The pattern is going to fulfill itself here. Uh, Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed throughout the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but they're filled again because it's a different opportunity and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. And we keep seeing this pattern through Acts. Prayer, what are they praying for? Lord, we pray for boldness. How is that going to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to fill us. When he fills us, we're going to speak the word boldly, and then some people are going to be saved, some aren't. We can't control that, but in Acts, we see it going forward. Now, let's look at one other place. Acts chapter 6, verse 4. This is when the widows, the the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food, and so the elders and the apostles got together and said, we need to... um, set up a deacon ministry here to make sure everybody gets taken care of. But look at verse 4. This is the apostles. We will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. So there's that word, devote themselves to prayer. Now, all throughout the gospel, or all throughout the book of Acts, you see the early church following this pattern. They devote themselves to prayer. Their prayers are very specific that we would be witnesses. The Holy Spirit comes in power. He fills them. They begin to speak boldly. And then we see salvations. Now, let me ask you a question. Does this pattern still happen today? Is this normative or is this descriptive? It's got to be normative. So how are we praying as a church and what are you praying for? Have you been praying for boldness? Let me ask you a question. That, that word boldness is an interesting Greek word. It's paresia. It means to have a freedom of speech to have an unhindered ability, to have a, a confidence, a, a, almost an otherworldly ability to speak. How many of you have ever, somebody was telling me this the other day, I think it was Sherry, uh, my secretary. She was, um, it was, I think she was teaching the kids and she just afterwards, she's like, I was so excited because I, it wasn't me speaking. I just started saying these words and the kids were listening and it was coming out and, and, and I was all clicking. I'm kind of paraphrasing what Sherry said. And she said, I was so excited because afterwards I looked back and I realized it wasn't me. And I said, it wasn't you. It was the Holy Spirit filling you at that moment to speak with power. Has anybody ever experienced that where you said something to somebody in a witnessing encounter or whatever, and afterwards you're like, I did not say that. John, yeah, it, that wasn't me. It involved a lot of prayer beforehand. Yeah. Actually, the first week of college, going to a Christian college, and it was the last, last night, and all everybody came together and praying in prayer groups, and it was just amazing how things just came out. And it's like, that, I don't even remember what I said, but people, mm-hmm. even until I graduated, were like, man, that really moved us. And I was like, it wasn't me. I don't even remember all this mm-hmm. stuff. But apparently, you know, God did something. Yeah, it's called, it's called um, boldness. Some old pastors, when they're preaching, they called it unction. Some people call it the anointing. Jonathan Edwards called it thunder and lightning. Spurgeon called it that sacred anointing. I can't remember who else would say something. It's just that ability, that supernatural filling of the Holy Spirit at a point in time that gives you the ability to speak the truth in a powerful way. And not that your mind turns off. It's just that it's that freedom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, and it and it's and it's not to draw attention to ourselves. It's it's your testifying to to Christ. So if that's the pattern, guys, what should we as Emmanuel Baptist Church be doing? Devoting ourselves to prayer, specifically for boldness, asking for the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can boldly give utterance to the gospel. And then God controls the salvations, but we pray that we see people get, get saved. Now, my whole sermon on Sunday was being missional, being engaging our lost culture. And I could have preached like four or five different sermons, but part of that is prayer has got to be foundational to everything that we do as a church. Because if anybody's going to get saved, do we do anything to get people saved? Do I walk up to Doug and say, Doug, let me talk you into getting saved. I have I got a deal for you. <laughs> Just repeat after me and say this prayer and raise your hand and walk this aisle and you are born again, son. No, when, I mean, if anybody's going to get saved, God has to do a supernatural work of regeneration in there. But how does God do that? He does it through our sharing of the gospel. And so the Holy Spirit's is indispensable because the Holy Spirit is involved in our witnessing and the Holy Spirit's involved in their conversion. And so if we leave out the role of the Holy Spirit, we are sunk. So as, as, as Christians, we need to be praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't necessarily manifest itself in weird and wacky things you see on Christian television. That's not, I mean, you don't see any of that in Acts. What you see is when the Holy Spirit showed up, you see bold proclamation of the truth and people getting saved. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit? to point people to Jesus. He's the spirit of truth. So I wanted to show you guys that pattern there in Acts, early there of just that whole word devoting themselves. And um, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a theme all throughout. I mean, if you if you go through Acts, one of, the, one of the things I want you, if you ever have time, go through and count up how many times they were preaching. They may use different words, sharing, preaching, telling, um, proclaiming, it's all over the place. It wasn't just, there were the public preaching like what I would do on Sunday mornings where somebody like there's Peter stands up in front of 3,000 people and preaches. Now, probably none of you are ever going to have a, a moment where you stand up in front of 3,000 people and preach. So there's the public proclamation, but there's the Philip type of preaching. So let's look at the Philip type of preaching. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. I remember that one of the sermon titles was two, two magicians in a conundrum. This is a one Ethiopian. What was it? One Ethiopian and a something. I can't remember the name of the title. But anyway, eight, chapter 8, verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, an official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading just happened to be, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened on his mouth. And his humiliation, humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And then you know the rest of the story. He gets baptized, and then Peter, or Philip just kind of disappears. That's a one-on-one witnessing encounter where he, Philip's not standing up preaching to a stadium full of people. He's just in a chariot explaining the Bible or explaining Jesus to another person that has questions. But notice what Philip was. Was Philip sensitive to the Holy Spirit? It doesn't say that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit on numerous occasions told him to go. And how did he respond? He ran to the chariot. And he knew enough of his Bible to be able to open his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's preaching. It's not just you standing up spouting off behind a pulpit. Preaching can be you next to a person over coffee, at your next door neighbor's house, at the workplace, doing what Philip did. 
He opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, told him the good news about Jesus. He's telling another person the good news about Jesus. And if you trace, there's the big public preaching events and there's the private preaching events all throughout Acts. The Holy Spirit's present in Acts all the way through preaching um, because what was the very first, what was the thesis, Acts 1.8? You will be witnesses. You will give witness. You will give testimony. You will proclaim the gospel when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Where? The whole world. Now, how does Acts end? Do you think we're going to see anything about boldness and preaching? We'd hope so. Paul's in prison. Remember, he finally made it to Rome after the, the long shipwreck and the snake bike when he gets on land. And then um, he had those three trials. He's in house arrest. And look at verse 30, the very last verse, two verses of the, of the book of Acts, chapter 28. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming what? What's proclaiming? Preaching, teaching, sharing. The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all what? Boldness and without hindrance. So how does Acts end right there? Boldly preaching the gospel. Now, here's the interesting thing. It ends with an adverb, unhinderedly, is really the way it would be translated. Do you end a sentence with an adverb? Acts ends with a dot, dot, dot. Really. Paul was there preaching the gospel, boldly preaching dot, dot, dot. What does the dot, dot, dot mean? It carries on today. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach and teach the gospel, to share it so that people will know the good news of Jesus. And until Jesus comes back, that's our command to do it in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and if you have a chance, to the ends of the earth. Whether you end up going like we go to India or Russia or whether you support or pray, the, the Acts 1-8 vision is that we would have a comprehensive ministry that stretches to the very ends of the earth in the power of the Holy Spirit, with boldness. Okay? So I could have just preached 40 minutes and we wouldn't have had to spend the whole year in Acts and you would have gotten... <laughs> no. Uh, in the last few minutes that we have together, what are some, um, maybe some things that we brought up, issues related to evangelism, boldness, Acts, power, pragmatism, heresies? Next week we're going to jump into Paul's epistles. We're going to talk about Paul, the letter writer, and we'll probably jump into Romans. We have to take two weeks on Romans, but we'll try to get through it. Any questions that you guys have or any other thought processes? It's more from church history. Yeah, like, um, I'm, I don't know the exact source, but there um, was an early church historian called Eusebius. Um, and a lot of his information, and, and even and I don't know if Josephus wrote anything about that, but we know Paul was probably beheaded before AD seventy, which is when Rome, which is when Rome came in and ransacked Jerusalem. So most people believe Paul was beheaded probably in the late sixties. Yeah. Yeah, he knew he was being poured out as a drink offering, and knew his time was was up. Why is it so hard to witness? Fear of rejection? Okay. Okay. So the antagonism? Okay. Uh, Kairos moments are those moments in time. There's a Greek word. There's a kairos and there's chronos. We know what the word chronos means, like chronometer. This just is the, the Greek word for time. It's a generic word for time. Kairos means a special or an appointed time. And so when Paul in Ephesians says, make the most of every opportunity, let's turn there real quick. Um, when Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, and if you're doing the 50-day spiritual journey, I think tomorrow's lesson will go into this a little bit more. But in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, 
Ephesians 5, 15, 16, when Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That word time there is kairos. And what it really means is God has, God has definite appointed times for you to share the gospel that are specific, like you said, specific God-ordained moments and open doors. The hard part is oftentimes we don't recognize those and we don't walk through those, but God may be appointing those all throughout the day. And so that's where it's the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit to be praying, Lord, what Kairos moments do you have for me today? What, have, what special appointed times have you appointed for me today? Open my eyes that I would see those times. Make those doors wide open so that when the Kairos moment, that ordained time comes in front of me where you've put me in the, in the position with the person that I, I know that there's the Kairos moment. Okay, when the Kairos moment happens, what should you be praying? Holy Spirit, at this moment, would you please fill me? Would you prepare their heart? And then guess what? When you pray, do you think the Holy Spirit's going to answer your prayer? Yes. He's going to fill you. And what is He going to fill you to do? To speak boldly in that Kairos moment to that person that God has ordained at that appointed time. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that person's going to receive it or not, but it, it means that at that moment, God has given you, it says redeem that moment. Make the most of that moment. Seize up that moment. Because that moment may not come back. God is sovereign over those moments. It's an appointed special time that God in His sovereign time clock has, has given to you. And there's no flux capacitor to go back 1.21 gigawatts and go back in time to get that time back. And those of you that know Back to the Future know what I'm talking about. Right, Scott, Marty, 1.21 gigawatts. All right. Anyway. Sorry. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anything? Final thoughts?